If you would, please take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5. This morning, we are going to learn of one of the greatest ways in which we can receive God's grace. God's grace poured out upon us. But we're also going to learn about one of the greatest things that will prohibit or interfere with God being able to pour out His grace and will also be and is also one thing that not only inhibits the grace of God being poured out upon us, but also God resists. This morning we're going to learn about pride and humility. Pride and humility and how important humility is in the Christian life, and how devastating pride is in our lives, in our families, and in our churches. Humility and pride. We're going to also learn of God's grace, which is what is needed in all of it. It's the foundation. We will also learn of the importance of being subject one to another, of preferring and honoring one another. And we're also going to learn a little bit, we're going to come back to this later, but we're going to learn a little bit about when we find ourselves in pride that one of the most arrogant and prideful beings ever to be created seeks to knock us down. In fact, the phrase used is to devour us. And it's very intriguing to me that this comes here as right after the instructions and admonitions given regarding pride and humility. Look with me in 1 Peter chapter 5 as I read, beginning in verse 5. Likewise, ye younger... Submit yourselves unto the elder. Yea, all of you be subject one to another and be clothed with humility. For God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. Casting all your care upon him, for he careth for you. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about, seeking whom he may devour, whom resist, steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren, that are in the world. Here we have an admonition given to the church, given to the saints, who are described in this same epistle and letter as pilgrims and strangers. We're just that in this world in which we live, as we are looking for our blessed hope in the return of the Lord Jesus Christ to be with him. 
but there's a lot of interrelations that takes place. Last week, we saw in the beginning of chapter 5, the admonitions given regarding the elder, pastor, and bishop in the church and the importance of his role in feeding the flock and taking the oversight of the flock. The importance of that. And now in verse 5, we have a transition phrase where it speaks of the likewise, where it's a continuation of that theme and it's dealing with the submission. Speaking of the younger, submitting yourselves to the elder. Here, this has some implication and context connected to the elders mentioned in verse 1 and continuing through, but it's a little bit more broad than that and how important it is for younger to consider the wisdom of the elder assuming that it's a wise, wise counsel given and wise instruction given, and we would hope that it is, and we have responsibilities to consider that, but how there is a submission that ought to take place. There ought to be a hearkening to that in the personal relationships. But you know, something gets in the way of that oftentimes. It's a little thing called, or rather should I say, a big thing called, do you have any guesses? Pride. Pride. Pride gets in the way of so many things. And you know what's so tricky about it? Is that it's, it's tricky. It's, it's one of those things that, that sneaks up on us. It's one of those things we don't even realize is a part of us. But you know when there's trouble here of submission, and as the admonition goes on, all of you be subject one to another. Sometimes we get caught up in the idea of hierarchy. I remember when I was a kid, I loved to quote this verse. Younger, submit to the elder. Did you hear that, Nate? Yeah, you submit to the elder. And you know what? You know why it was a key verse for me? Because it used to be quoted to me all the time, too. <laughs> because I was right in the middle, number five, five of ten. And, uh, and this was kind of a great verse, but you want to know something? We had it all wrong. Sorry, Nate. Nathaniel, sorry. That's what we used to call him when we were little. and He hated the name. That's why we called him that. Isn't that terrible? And now he's all grown up, and, and we call him Nathaniel, and, and we call him Nate, and it doesn't make any difference to him anymore. At least I don't think so. But see, we have these ideas of this pride and this superiority that takes place, and it can trickle in and cause a lot of trouble. In fact, this is part of the reason why the continuation comes in from the elder side of a thing is because there is a natural, for the pastor side of a way, especially where there is, there is an authority that is there. But when authority mixes with pride, it's not a pretty result, is it? In any context of authority, when pride and authority are together, it really undermines the authority. It's a big problem. That's why there is indeed a need here of there being a subjection one to another. That's a putting ourselves under another. It's a good thing. I think it's admirable when, when an employer recognizes the wisdom and the skill of an employee, especially that's the reason why he would appoint him to that position, is because he recognizes his abilities and his skills. And when that employee comes and says, we ought not to be doing things this way and ought to be doing things this way, the wise owner, the wise authority will his listen. And if the consul is wise, will submit himself to it. Authority has an aspect of mutual submission. Take in consideration the highest leader of our land, the president. If he's not listening to his advisors, 
he's in trouble. There's times when he needs to hear and he needs to submit to wise counsel. We saw this morning, Jehoiakim, he thought himself the greatest. He's the king of Judah. He's the big man. And yet when the word of the Lord comes in before his presence, he just totally mocks it. He totally ignores it and not only ignores it and mocks it, he seeks to destroy it. But we know that he couldn't destroy the word of the Lord for what the Lord had said came to pass. He refused to submit. And one of the troublemakers there in his life was pride. Was pride. Pride. Sometimes in a family, we have an authority structure, mom and dad and children. And sometimes children will take the faults of their parents and try to use it against them. Newsflash, kids, none of our parents... None of your parents are perfect. None of us are. In fact, you've probably seen pride, and it's something that you have to deal with. Yes, we as parents, in whatever positions of authority we may find ourselves in, need to consider ourselves whether there be pride. But then at the same time, if we're one called to submit, regardless of the pride, and acknowledging that we ought to obey God rather than men, thereby we don't disobey God to honor any person, but yet when we can honor God and obey. In fact, also honor God by obeying. We submit. But we need to all be clothed with humility. I've thought long on that picture. Clothed with humility. Why would God describe humility as clothing? Well, I don't know that I can give a definitive answer to that question, but it is intriguing as human beings. For a long time, we have tied a lot of our status and our pride to our clothing, don't we? There is very much in which the fashion world and society takes and puts our identity in clothing. Now, the command here to be clothed with humility, I don't believe is specifically dealing with how we dress. I think it's dealing with our, our attitude, our life, but yet it has impact in how we dress. And when we consider all of that in both how we dress, are we dressing to promote ourselves and to make ourselves look great and good and, and make ourselves identified with what? And who? And what system? And what cosmos? We forget the word cosmetology coming of putting the things in order. And there's a good thing to put things in order. But, but whose order is it? And is it appropriate? Is it modest? Is it glorying in shame? Or is it decent? These are things that are a piece of our clothing. But now take and see how sometimes we take the sensitive and very personal nature of our clothing. And sometimes we get really defensive about it don't we? Sometimes prideful. And perhaps that's the reason why the Holy Spirit has chosen this phrase to describe our lives, our clothing. We wear clothes all the time. It describes who we are in some ways. That's why you have, throughout generations, there have been uniforms and other things as marks of identity. But then, Considering and taking for a moment and, and setting aside the whole topic of what we actually wear, 
how do we wear our attitude? How do we wear our spirit? Are we always going around with the attitude of superiority? Or let me rephrase that. I might say, are we always? And all of us would probably say, I don't always go around with the spirit of superiority. But you see, that's the very tricky part about pride. Because the very moment that we think we're not doing something, sometimes we're being proud in the way that we're thinking of it. You ever thought of that? That's one of the tricky natures of pride, is that even, even in points of humility, in one area, results in pride over here. And so we need to always be looking through life, and as we put on our clothes in the morning, are we considering ourselves as being clothed with humility, both in what we're putting on, but also in what, how we are preparing our attitude and our demeanor. We joke about people having woke up on the wrong side of the bed. You ever heard that joke? Oh, really? I thought that's a, that's a Wesco thing? Oh, good, good, it's not. I was concerned. Yes, no, we, we joke about it, but yet that's a piece of it. How do we wake up? How do we clothe our spirits and our attitudes as we move into life? And even as we look here, we find some intriguing aspect because we see, well, in verse 6, the command is given, humble yourselves. And now we find that it is something that we have a part in doing. And so we do it. And then we say, ah, I have humbled myself. Ah, I've arrived. But have we? Now, all of a sudden, the pride snuck right back in. I submit to you that as we look through this passage, there is a key phrase in all of this. Look with me here. As the command is given, be clothed with humility. For God resisteth the proud and giveth grace to the humble. The key word there is grace. Grace from God. You see, as we continue through our lives, when we put on our clothes in the morning, do we recognize and give account that we are clothed as believers in Christ's righteousness? Do we, as we clothe ourselves, acknowledge and recognize that by God's grace, we put off another picture of clothing, those things of the world? We put them off as we put on the armor of light as we put on and consider that Jesus, we don't really put it on, but by faith we recognize that Jesus has clothed us in his royal garments of righteousness. Do we consider the fact when we clothe ourselves that our righteousnesses are as filthy rags and do fade as the leaf? and 
fly away as the wind blows the dead leaf? Do we recognize that we are but dust? While at the same time, do we recognize that we are created in the image of God, His most cherished creation? And do we recognize and realize that as believers, we're more than in the image of God. We have now become joint heirs with Christ. We are special. You see, sometimes humility is put away in the modern psyche and psychology philosophies because they think of it as the pushing down and the oppressing of the person. No, no, no. True humility doesn't view yourself as dirt and walking around. Woe is me. True humility recognizes, yes, I am but as dust, made in the image of God, of unbelievable value to God. The one who is the greatest, the loftiest, the most mighty. And he gave his life for me. So then why would I clothe myself in pride and arrogancy and go through my day in a spirit of pride, in a spirit of selfishness, in a spirit of superiority? No. I need the grace of God every day and in every moment to live humble, to recognize what I am, but who I am in Christ. Oh, the glorious truth of what this is. I'd like for you to turn back to Isaiah chapter 57. Isaiah 57 has an incredible description of contrast. A contrast between who we are and who God is. Now keep in mind, 1 Peter was written to a people, to the saints who were pilgrims, were strangers. They were hunted and persecuted. They had a lot of big men in their lives who sought them much trouble. And sometimes when we've got the big man pushing down on us, we often want to stand right up, right? Well, how we stand right up, is it in humility or is it in pride? And in all of this, we need the proper perspective. Pride is an intriguing thing because it's, it's very much a comparison question, Okay? So you think about who you are, and you think about who you are compared to your, the rest of your family. You think about who you are compared to the rest of your church. You think of who you are compared to the rest of your coworkers. Well, you know, that's a dangerous thing. And in fact, oftentimes doing those kinds of comparisons will cause us to become a very proud people. Very proud. But there is one comparison that is very legitimate and that's a comparison between who we are and who God is. And look with me at Jeremiah 57, verse 15. It says this, For thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high, and holy place. With him also 
that is of a contrite and humble spirit, to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. I think we could preach a whole series on this verse. This verse is filled with such glorious truth, truth of who God is, truth of who we are, and truth of how we interact with him. I find it fascinating that some of the Hebrew words used here to describe God are the same words in Proverbs where we are said not to be. Lift not up yourself is commanded. But yet here, that same word is used to describe God. And you might say, oh, you're saying God is proud? No, 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 I'm not saying God is proud. I'm saying that God is, God is, he just is, but justice isn't the right way. He, he, he is, he is, he is high. There's no way for him to be proud because even if he wanted to be proud, it wouldn't really, I, he's so much higher than proud is. I mean, do you see it? It's, it's, he can't be proud because he's so high. You know, we talk about lifting ourselves up in pride and we do that. And in contrast to God, well, there's no scale. I mean, God could be lifted up and lifted up and lifted up and lifted up and, and it would never succumb to the infinity of how high he is. He is so high. He just is high. He's everything. And that's the reason why it's so laughable or foolish for us to lift ourselves up. We, we can contrast. We don't even register on the scale. The greatest, most educated, most powerful, most wealthy person ever to live didn't even register on the lifted up scale in God's definition. I mean, didn't even register at 0.000000000001. Like, they don't, we don't, nobody even registers on that scale of high. God is high to the infinity. He is high. But I love this here. He's also holy. He also inhabiteth eternity. All the great men, all the big men, all the powerful men, all the monsters in history, they're dead or they will be dead. But the one who is actually high, he dwelt in eternity. He's the Alpha and Omega. He, time does not constrain him. <laughs> all the high men, you can, you, we could go through and count so many of them throughout history. In a, in a few, few weeks, we'll be learning about Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar, the great, 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 great king of Babylon. The high king, the head of gold. Well, he's nothing. And even in his own dream of the head of gold, then he tried to make himself the whole thing of gold, failed to recognize that there's one greater. There's one greater. I think he did recognize in the end. But see, he is high. He is holy. God is separate. That's part of the reason why we can't even, in our highness, we can't even register on the scale of highness because God is so high. He's holy. He is set apart from who we are. But yet, he being the one who is set apart and he the one who dwells in the high and holy place, it says that with him also that is of a contrite and humble spirit. 
Oh, did you hear that? That means that I and you can be with him. But it's not by us lifting ourselves up or thinking of ourselves more highly than we ought to think. It is us being humble and of a contrite. Contrite speaks of, of a brokenness, a, a humility that acknowledges truth and the reality of truth. One who is humble and of a contrite spirit. A broken heart. A broken people. You might say, well, this is backwards to modern psychology. It is, but it isn't. Because, well, it is contrary to modern society. It's the psychology, but it's, it's funny because they speak of the idea of self-esteem. Well, we may not call it self-esteem, but what's being described here is, is that the one who is broken is the one who is, by God, revived and dwelling in the highest of the highest of the highest. Talk about self-esteem. I mean, all the self-esteem doctrine becomes insignificant when we recognize that the true fact of the matter is, is that when we are humble, when we are contrite, when we are broken before the high and holy one, that is in that moment that he lifts us up and he revives us and he puts us right there with him. And then when all the big bad men who have lifted themselves up against us, we realize that we have nothing to fear because we are seated in heavenly places with the high one, the lofty one. Notice the word one, the one who inhabiteth eternity. And therefore, no matter what the big men, the high men around us may be or do, we're in his presence. You see, it's he that lifts us up if we come back to 1 Peter. Notice here, it says, For God resisteth the proud and giveth grace to the humble. That grace to the humble being described here is in in judicially, that is in reality, being lifted up and placed in the very presence of the one who inhabiteth eternity. This isn't meaning that some bully at school knocks you down and God lifts you up so that you can be the bully. No. Even when you are knocked down, if you are one who is humble of a contrite spirit, in reality, though you may be pushed down and bullied, you're really seated in heavenly places. That's the reason why Stephen, when he was beaten down, the deacon Stephen, and he had stones being thrown at him, didn't see the stones. He looked past the stones into the very throne room of God where he saw Jesus standing. And moments later, I believe he was physically embraced by Jesus there in the heavenly places, in that high place. But you see, even though he hadn't yet gone there, he was living there. That's something we need to understand how to do in our lives 
is to day by day, again, when we get up and when we clothe ourselves, are we recognizing and clothing ourselves with humility? Are we recognizing and acknowledging that we are clothed with the righteousness of Christ? And are we recognizing in that that we are clothing ourselves in a battle? And the way to win that battle is not by lifting ourselves up in pride and arrogancy, but by humbling ourselves. Key phrase, under the mighty hand of God. This humbling is not some kind of self-affliction or self-torture, as some have mistakenly thought it. No, 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 no. No. It is a recognition of who we are as frail human beings whose lives are but a vapor. That's when you blow out a candle and the smoke is there for just a little bit. Appears for a little while and then vanishes away. And when we recognize that, and then we recognize that we are lowly and that God is holy and that God is high and that we are low, it is in that when we seek him and receive his grace that he lifts us up. And when we go through the day, we can live that day reckoning ourselves and truly judicially as seated in heavenly places. Because if we're doing the opposite, God resists us. God resists us. See, the hand of God can be there resisting us, but when we place our, ourselves under the hand of God, it's in that that his hand lifts us up. What's our relationship to God's hand? Sometimes we walk in pride and we've done wrong. You know, every time we sin, we're really walking in pride. We're really saying, God, I know better. I got this. I can do what I want to do. I will be like the Most High. Now, we don't say it that way, partly because we're too proud to say it that way because we know if we said it that way, we'd be sounding like somebody else. So we don't say it that way. But our heart says it. When we intentionally choose to disobey God or we choose to, to not obey him, we are saying, I am like the Most High. I am God. I'm curious, when I make that reference of I am like the Most High or I am like God, how many of you know who I'm talking about who first said that? Oh, good, I'm glad that you know, but we need to turn over there real quick because some didn't raise your hands, and I think truly because you don't know. Turn with me to Isaiah 14. Isaiah 14, we're there in Isaiah. We were looking there in Isaiah 57, and turning back to Isaiah 14, we meet a man whose name is Lucifer. You know, he's got many names. In uh, 1 Peter 5, we find out um, hmm, that he's the devil, the adversary, Satan. That's that word. Satan means adversary. Satan, the devil. Devil means accuser. He's the adversary accuser. And here we find back in Isaiah 14, he's referred to as Lucifer, the shining one. 
And here the question is asked, Isaiah 14, 12, How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground, which didst weaken the nations? For thou hast said in thine heart, and I think that's interesting, in thine heart, because we don't vocalize these words. Most people don't vocalize these kinds of words. And sometimes I don't even think that we vocalize them in our minds. But do we vocalize them in our heart? What was Lucifer? I will ascend into heaven. That's where the one who is high lives. That's where the one who is holy inhabiteth eternity. But here the Lucifer says, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the height of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. And I just dramatized it and made it a big deal. But it's interesting. For thou hast said in thine heart. That's an oh-so-tricky little thing. Our hearts. We're going to learn in Jeremiah that the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. And Jeremiah, as soon as he tells us that, he himself prays, search me, O God, and know me and try my heart and see if there be any wicked way in me. Because our hearts oftentimes, without being so flamboyant as I was just now describing Lucifer, say these in quietness. Sometimes in pride, sometimes in, in forthright arrogancy. But oftentimes pride is that little thing that's deep, deep down in the heart that then is manifested in a manifold of different ways. It's interesting that it comes in the context of submitting yourselves one to another because a proverb tells us that only by pride cometh contention. Only by pride cometh contention. Troubles, conflict, problems. Is there tension in your home and in your relationships? The proverb says that it's only by pride. Pride ultimately, in its rawest form, is the heart saying, I will be like the Most High. We've got to squish pride because it's ever so little in our hearts can rear its head in some of the most monstrous and ugly ways as well as some of the smallest little deceptions. Beware of pride. And so what when you identify contention in your home? Humble yourselves. I tell you, one of the first things is to recognize and acknowledge and confess that there is pride. And confess and acknowledge that there is only one who is high. And it is then, when we bow to him, that he will lift us up. Moms and dads, as we are leading our families, and when we find that with our children, 
we need to be quick and ready to identify contention. And we need to be quick and ready to pray out to the Holy Spirit, search me and try my heart. Because am I in this moment lifting myself up to be like the Most High? Am I behaving like Lucifer? So often we would say, oh, no, 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 not me. But is that in itself pride? Humble ourselves and recognize that there is contention here. There is pride. And sometimes we try to figure out exactly where it's at so we can do this comparison game. And most of the time that's not healthy because it just is a determination as to see who's higher. See? The point is for us all to recognize that we are weak and in desperate need of the grace of God and to humble ourselves under his mighty hand and seek to deal with these situations. It doesn't mean that you just ignore them. Sometimes people deal with contention by ignoring them. No, you do have to deal with them sometimes, not always. Sometimes you can just walk away from something. But, but oftentimes, especially in a home situation, there is a need to work through it. But it has to be worked through in humility. It has to be worked through being clothed with humility. Otherwise, it will escalate and escalate. And when there is pride, you're not getting grace. You're actually getting the resistance of God. So in the very moment that we need the grace and we need God's help, when we're letting pride get in the way, it's what is limiting us. It's what is inhibiting us. And you know what happens then? That one Lucifer who says, I will be like the Most High, you know, he loves pride. Because when we're prideful, we're like him. And that's when he can move in and devour us. And you know how the cycle works? Oftentimes, when we find ourselves in pride, he comes in and he stirs that situation up and the people involved, and we devour each other. And then, if pride is there, we're too proud to admit that we're devouring each other, so we devour each other even more. And pride just is this vicious cycle, cycle, cycle. And sometimes, he doesn't even have to even roar, it seems. Because in our own pride, we destroy and devour one another. James warns of this over and over and over. From whence come wars and fightings among you, he asks in James chapter 4, come they not hence, even of your lusts that war in your members? Turn with me over to James chapter 4 because it continues through all of this there. James chapter 4 is an incredible passage relating to the family. And he begins in verse 1 with this question, from whence cometh from whence cometh the wars and fightings among you? So often we're not willing to admit that the conflict in our own home are wars. We like to think of wars as in what's going on in, in Ukraine, not what's going on in our own homes. That's probably because we're too proud to admit we've got wars in our own homes because we're not supposed to have wars in our homes, so we won't admit that we do have them. But from whence, he asks, come wars and fightings among you? He says, come they not hence? Even of your lusts that war... In your members, ye lust and have not, ye kill and desire to have and cannot obtain. Ye fight and war, yet ye have not, because ye ask not. Now we look at this here, and again we see that kill, and again we're immediately thought of the extreme wars. It does speak of true physical killing and murdering, 
which sadly has happened within those who are called saints and it becometh them not. But yet, how often are these other things here in the midst of this? And here he says it's because you ask not. Verse 3, ye ask not and receive not because ye ask amiss that ye may consume it upon your lusts. Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. Do ye think that the Scripture saith in vain, the spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth to envy? You see, we're going to find out here that all of these things are sourced in pride because James is going to quote the same passage from Psalms that Peter's quoting. We haven't gotten there yet, have we? For look what it says, verse 6, but he that is God giveth more grace. Wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. Be afflicted and mourn and weep. Let your laughter return to mourning and your joy to heaviness. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he shall lift you up. And he goes on. Here you see in James chapter 4, you want to wonder, know how, what it means to humble yourself. Some details are given here. Ultimately, and very, very specifically, it begins with confession. That is beginning with admitting, I'm proud. But confession is more than admitting. True confession is agreeing. Agreeing with God. If God were to look into your heart and search your heart this morning, would he find it lifted up? Or would he find it humble? Even Jeremiah, the great prophet, when he recognized his heart, he prayed, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and see if there be any wicked way in me. James and Peter, did you know they have the same source? They have the book of Proverbs. And in Proverbs chapter 3 and verse 34, they're quoting. There it's worded a little different in our English translation. Surely he, God, scorneth the scorners, but he giveth grace unto the lowly. Lowly is not some kind of woe is me. Lowly is a recognition of who we are before the high one. And so as we look here at this, are we clothed with humility, recognizing that God resisteth the proud, but that he give grace to the humble? Do we humble ourselves under his mighty hand, that he may exalt us, 
that he may lift us up to where he is at, the high place. And in all of this, it's interesting that the casting all your care upon him for he careth you is thrown in here. You know, sometimes the lowly, the humble, are exploited. And the response in that time is not to get proud, but to cast your care upon him and continue living humbly, humbly before God. Do we walk humbly with our God? May we this morning pray as Jeremiah did. Search me, O God. And if the Holy Spirit of God reveals to us a heart of pride, ever how small we may think it's lifted up, may we confess it, forsake it, as we humble ourselves under God's mighty hand and his amazing, amazing grace. Let's for a moment, quietly in our seats, bow our heads before the High One, the Holy One, our God. Fifty-seven. Cleanse me. For the song of David, the song and prayer of Jeremiah, and others before us, the prayer has been put to song. Search me, O God. Let's stand together and sing and pray 
together. Hymn number 57.